Some people think that your childhood gives you the best days of your life, and other people think, or say at least, that growing up is hard. So which is it? As you get bigger, what do you lose? What falls away? These are all questions we could be thinking about after or during reading the story for this episode today, The Stars We Raised. Joining me to talk about that story in this episode is the writer and researcher Yen Wei, and our conversation is going to go all over the place, as you'll hear when it begins. Before we get to that conversation, I'll be doing the Trichific News, but before I get to that news segment, I thought I would just really quickly do a couple of plugs that I usually stick on the end of the episode, just to give them a bit more foregrounding than usual. So first thing is, if you want to help the show out, um, one quite handy thing you could do is review it on uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to this show. I think Apple, Apple Podcasts is, you know, supposedly the, supposedly the best one, but let's say you listen on Google Podcasts. If, if you love the show and if you could leave a review um, saying what you like about it, that would just be fantastic. It'll it'll pump the show, pump the show up the charts. Is that the right verb? It'll boost the show in the respective podcast platforms charts and help people help more people find it, which is just, you know, that's how we make the magic work. So that's one little uh, plug. And the other is the show's Patreon. So every two weeks for months now, I've had a new bonus episode going up. Sometimes it's uh, just a few minutes of chat um, about whichever bonus question I've snipped away for an episode. But also very often it's 15 to like 40 odd minutes, averaging averaging about 30 um, of just me sharing thoughts solo and something I've read. Something either that is translated Chinese fiction or just a book related to Chinese like history or literature, literature or whatever. I, I keep those coming. They are, there's a pipe, a pipeline, a queue, whatever. There's going to be a new one um, guaranteed every two weeks up to uh, January 2023 and I'll be recording more soon. So there's over, I'm pretty sure there's over a hundred little bonus episodes up there now. I'm pretty sure that's right. There's absolutely oodles that you can get there and it's just a dollar uh, a month to, to get access. And I won't hate you if you sign up for a month, download everything, and then cancel after you've paid the dollar, because that's still a dollar. It keeps the show ticking over, helps pay for the hosting fees, etc., etc. Right, there's your plugs. Now I'm gonna um, get onto the tran- the translated Chinese fiction news, the trichrific news. Right, so just three items this week. Thought I'd keep it relatively quick. The first is slightly meta. I'm going to be hosting the November 2022 Sinoist Book Club online virtual event, and it's going to be on Lee Peifu's graft. We'll have the translator, James Trapp, there. I'll be interviewing him, essentially, but also just sort of talking about the book, hopefully taking some questions from the floor. I've read Graft. It's a pretty damn good novel. Pretty damn good ride through sort of corruption in the levels of Chinese local government. And I know that maybe doesn't sound like the most thrilling topic, but it's got interestingly drawn characters, an interesting sort of angle, just all around. I rate this book and I'm looking forward to talking about it. So there's a link to sign up for this event in the show notes. It's an event bright page. It's totally free to join. And it's going to be happening on Sunday, the 27th of November, 5 p.m. UK time. So there's a fairly strong chance that you'll hear this um, somewhere in the future after this event has happened. Uh, if you are listening after Sunday the 27th, fear not, because Sinoist Books actually always put these recordings of their events up onto YouTube. So if you're listening in 2030 and you're thinking, well, this is pointless, it's not. Just go to YouTube, uh, search for Sinoist Book Club, 
graft Li Peifu and you'll find the conversation I had with James there. Isn't that magic? Okay, next news item. This is uh, kind of about not translated um, fiction, uh, but it is relevant because it's an uh, author who we've covered on the show and who twice and who has been on the show as a guest once, Yang Ge. She's got a new book coming out. It's called Elsewhere. It's a collection of short stories. And this is her English language debut. This is not translated. This is Yen writing in her second language. I think it's a pretty big deal for her. Her transition from living in China to a new life in first Ireland, then the UK, has been a really big deal for her. And, you know, that goes parallel with switching from writing in Chinese to writing in English. I can only imagine um, how sort of existentially weird that must be. Probably no accident that this collection is called Elsewhere. So I popped a link to um, the book on Simon & Schuster's website, but it's coming out uh, definitely on both sides of the Atlantic in English. So I believe it's out for pre-order right now, but it's it's imminent basically. And then the third item, it's also a new book. This one's coming out December 2022 this year. This is not such an affordable title. This is up for £90 right now on Bloomsbury's website. It's part of uh, their academic imprint, Bloomsbury Academic. That might explain the price. But it does look really interesting, so I thought I'd, I'd highlight it. So its its full title is Reading in Chinese Women's, Women's Philosophical and Feminist Thought from the Late 13th to the Early 21st Century. And I'll read the first um, first paragraph of the blurb here. Uh, this book gathers 40 original writings on women by 32 authors, many of whom are women, <laughs> interesting, from the Yuan Dynasty to the Republics. Oh, I've never heard the ROC and the PRC refer to as the Republics, but that makes sense. From the Yuan Dynasty to the Republics, an important 700-year historical period during which women's learning in China blossomed as a result of economic prosperity, the development of commercial printing, and the interaction between East and West. I'll actually read the second paragraph as well. Selections are made not only from canonical texts on women's virtues, but also from less orthodox literary works such as plays, poetry, novels, essays, and revolutionary writings that eliminate the lived experience of women and the perception of gender. With many texts translated into English for the first time, this reader provides the context needed to understand them. Very nice. So I think this might be one to get through a library or academic access or if you're very rich, you can pay the full £90. But yeah, I just thought that was worth a highlight. So that is the full translated Chinese fiction news. I hope you enjoyed it. Also, I hope that um, the position I put the microphone in hasn't produced weird noises. I've put it its legs slightly closer together to make it stand higher and go closer to my mouth. But I, yeah, I've seen it wobbling. <laughs> so hopefully the wobbles don't translate into weird noise. Or they didn't translate into weird noise. Anyway, enough of my rambling. On with the interview. On the show, we have Yen Ui. Great to have you here. We're going to be talking about a really interesting story uh, that we've read from the new book, The Way Spring Arrives. But before we get to that, I was just wondering if you could introduce yourself to the listeners. Okay, hi. Um, thanks, um, Angus, for having me on the show. Um, my name is Yen, as you said, and I am a writer, a researcher, and an editor. I write nonfiction, fiction, science fiction, poetry, um, games, or whatever I can write, uh, whatever I want to try writing. I like experimenting with writing, um, if that 
isn't obvious yet. <laughs> um, I'm a researcher um, at the moment. I'm doing my PhD on Chinese science fiction. So this topic is very much um, on my mind most days. Um, and I'm also an editor for um, various things. But um, right now I'm editing anthologies for Abterra, which is the science fiction um, imprint for Brain Mill Press. So that's me. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So I may may have already said to you listeners uh, in the intro before this that we're doing a Chinese sci-fi story. We're doing The Stars We Raised by Xiao Xinyu. Mm-hmm. So Yen, another quick intro question. What was your first contact with Chinese sci-fi? And since that first contact, how has that relationship between you and the, um, I was going to say the genre, that's almost mm-hmm. not the right word, because being from a country doesn't make you a genre. But in any case, how's your relationship with Chinese sci-fi evolved? Sure. Um, well, my first contact with Chinese sci-fi uh, was actually through Indian sci-fi. Ah. Um, it was, I think, around 2013 when I first came across Vandana Singh's um, anthology called The Woman Who Thought She Was a Planet. I'm not sure if you read it, but if you haven't, go read it. It's amazing. And being from Malaysia, Malaysia is a very uh, multicultural country. And so I got a lot of the local flavors that Vandana Singh had um, put into that anthology. And I really, really enjoyed it. And in the back of my mind, it was just screaming, why hasn't anyone done this with Chinese sci-fi? And if there is, why am I not reading it? Mm. So that got me going in terms of starting to look into Chinese sci-fi, see what I can find about it. Um, I think the first story that I found um, in sort of 2013, 14, probably 14, um, is um, Exuviation by Chao Haihong in Lightspeed. You can you can read that in Lightspeed. Um, it's for free online. And then the other one was um, Han Song's um, Wheel of Samsara. So another one, another short story that I found. And it was actually really, really hard to find anything in English at that point, um, which is Chinese sci-fi based. Um, and in 2014, I ran um, a Chinese science fiction event at the London Book Fair. And I invited uh, Michael Rowley, who's an editor, a uh, science fiction editor, um, and uh, Xiaolu Guo, the writer, oh, yeah. to come on, yeah, um, and to come on the panel and just talk about um, Chinese sci-fi in general. And we were just sort of touching the surface. Um, and obviously, Xiaolu Guo had a lot to talk about her own writing, um, and she had, I think, just released the. Um, oh, I can't remember the title of that one. I should have checked before. Um, it's the UFO one. Um, and she had just released um, the book, and it was also in film, I think. My memory's a bit hazy there. Let me summon yeah, the power yeah. of Google. Shall we draw UFO? <laughs> Let's see. UFO in her eyes? Yes, that's the one. That is the one. Um, yeah, it was brilliant because she came on and talked about writing it and talked about um, uh, yeah the processes and you know how it was taken because um, she's that that was kind of her first array into sci-fi. Or, or rather, it was an accidental array into science science. Mm. Um, but it meant that we had something to kind of talk about in terms of um, sort of Michael's perspective of sci-fi in general and where we saw sort of sub-genres of it, like Chinese sci-fi, you know, how, how it came in and all that kind of stuff. And then um, I think it was the next year in Nine Worlds, I organized um, another Chinese sci-fi panel and I had Michael again, um, but with um, Sue Ting. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Christine Nee Sweating, yeah. um, who I think was on your show as well at some point. Yeah. yeah. So um, the three of us again talked a little bit about um, Chinese sci-fi and Sweating at that point um, was also um, doing little seminars on Chinese sci-fi history and stuff like that. So it was really interesting um, that the conversations were starting to develop from there. But um, the year after that, as you know, um, from 2015 onwards, Liu Qixin and Ken Liu exploded the scene. And then, you know, as they say, um, everything else is then history, right? Um, <laughs> so that was kind of how I came into Chinese sci-fi. But um, I should also mention that my um, definition of Chinese sci-fi is a little bit broader than most people because I include a lot of the diaspora writers in my research work. Okay, so that's that's a little bit of history. I guess I could also mention that we've we've come into contact a few times before. I bet mm -hmm. if there's any really obsessive listeners of the show, they'll know that already. But we <laughs> first met at that uh, genre fiction symposium held by Leeds Uni mm -hmm. donkeys ago now, pre-pandemic. Wow. Um, yeah, another life. Yes. One of many lives. That's right. Um, I guess we were both there to talk about the sci-fi side of things and to learn, mm. for me anyway, to learn about the crime and the wuxia side of things. Um, mm. And since then we did um, appear together on, a, on an online panel. Was, mm -hmm. was it Essence of Wonder? Something of Wonder? Yes, Essence of Wonder. Essence of Wonder. Yeah, mm. and Shui Ting was there and so were mm. there. I couldn't remember all the names, but yeah, we have we have a little bit of communication back. I think uh, Regina was there as well. Yeah, yeah, it was an event of. She yeah. was in the the first half, right? With the Chinese. oh yes, that's right. With the Chinese panel, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yep. I know Me memory is very hazy for those two years. <laughs> yeah, that was a mid. That was well, at least in the UK terms, that was lockdown too. I think when that one yeah. happened, yeah, or around about lockdown too. Yeah, so we should we should move on past the mm -hmm. intros and start talking about the story. Star has okay. been raised by Xiao Shenyu. Mm -hmm. Now, full disclaimer here to yourself and the listeners, I read this one quite a while back mm -hmm. and I've not read it again since. So probably my memories are going to reactivate as we discuss it. So I wonder again if I could trouble you to summarize the story because <laughs> I will be in trouble if you don't. <laughs> okay, well... Um, I was trying to figure out how to summarize it because um, there are many ways to summarize it. Mm. Um, and I'm going to read what I wrote in my notes. It's a really, really short, like two lines in my notes, and then I'll, I'll summarize it properly after that. Okay. So I've got here, it's a story summary. Growing up in the countryside, the phenomenon of stars appearing that you can farm, um, social discrimination, privilege sets, gets amplified. <laughs> that's what I put in there. Mm -hmm. So in, in very short stints, that's what it is. Um, it's a story that follows, um, it's a story that follows the, the narrator who's a girl and she grows up in the countryside. And among her friends are um, two key sort of protagonists. One is Jiang Yang, I guess, um, is how you would say his name. Um, and the other is Captain Wang. Um, and between the two, there are the typical sort of um, hit boy, very popular and all that, and that's Captain Wang. And Jiang Yang is the, um, the, the other end of the spectrum where he's really unpopular and um, comes from a um, slightly broken family. His, his dad works in town, grandmother um, is bringing him up um, and he seems to kind of always get bullied by all the friends. 
Um, so in this little countryside um, and, and the rest of the world, um, the phenomenon of um, stars starts to appear and people realize that they can harvest is probably wrong with um sort of nurture, pick them up, take care of them. Mm. Um, and as the stars grow old, they start to dim um, and get bigger. And then it gets to a point where the grown-ups take them, grind them and make them into a powder form that creates a really strong kind of cement, um, it is a cement um, additive, additive, is that how you say it? Yeah, additive. Hmm. Um, and so it becomes this sort of, um, the, the children take it in and then the grown-ups sell it like a year later kind of thing. Um, but Jiang Yang was the only one who kind of kept his teeny tiniest star because he got the smallest one because he was always booming and Captain Wang got the biggest one. But um, when everyone else sold their stars, he didn't sell his star and it was only found out a little bit later and then he got punished for it and there are lots of like, um, I guess, playground antics, you know, um, the kids bullied him and then his grandmother um, disciplined him and um, it all got a little bit out of hand. And as they grew up um, into teenagers and stuff, Captain Wang um, had a little mishap with his girlfriend and when they got the local people to kind of investigate into what happened, um, someone, a, a, I think it was a Taoist monk um, or something um, along those lines came up and suggested that maybe someone is because someone had been raising a star in secret and caused all these issues. Um, and when they looked into Jiang Yang's desk, they found many little stars that he was hiding when he shouldn't have been rearing them. Um, and his grandma came into school and with a knife <laughs> um, to try and chop up the stars, but um, he tried to protect the stars and got hurt instead. And then that was the end of, sort of that little bit of that section. When they're all older and working and stuff like that, um, Zhang Yang comes back to the countryside and invites um, the narrator out to have a last kind of star harvest together to make a little bit of money. Um, and they go, go out on a little trip and that forms the kind of last act of the story. Um, I won't finish the last bit because um, I think we'll either talk about it later or um, I don't want to give out too many spoilers right at this point. <laughs> yeah, in, in either eventuality, whether we discuss it um, at a more fruitful point, or whether we leave it unpopped, yeah. it's going to be harvested. It's going to be harvested, yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's an amazing summary. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I'd like, mm -hmm. it's got me itching to analyze it, but I think before mm -hmm. we can do that, I was just wondering if we could talk a bit about Xiu Shen Yu and her identity as an author. I, I can start with like real basics. This is not one of the big stars of Chinese sci fi, mm -hmm. no pun intended. Mm -hmm. um, this isn't a Han song, and it's not even a Regina Kan Yu Wang, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the first time I encountered uh, her name. And she's of a generation, I, well, correct me if I'm wrong here, but she's in, I guess, the youngest generation of Chinese sci-fi writers. That's, yeah, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. so mm -hmm. presumably somewhere in her 20s or maybe early 30s. I'm, I, I would guess late 20s, um, but... I could be wrong. I don't actually know when she was born. <laughs> yeah, same age as me, maybe. 29, 30 yeah. in February. 20s yeah. are almost over. The star is about to be completely ground. Ah, <laughs> no, harvested. that's too early. <laughs> right, right. 
just just based on my own mm -hmm. observation, but I think others have made this observation that these younger writers tend towards and this isn't uniform, but they tend towards sort of more gentle, thoughtful stories. They might be positive rather than dramatic and dark. They might be melancholy and reflective rather than mm -hmm. packed with action. Um, and people's you hear people say this this is a tendency among the female writers of that wave who are fairly numerous but you can also definitely see in male writers like Achua, um that mm -hmm. i did an episode recently on his farewell doraemon and mm -hmm. i think that's a pretty it makes for quite a strong comparison with with this book mm. in a lot of ways but we, we might get into that so yeah that's all I i've, could I've really not read say. that so we probably can't <laughs> <laughs> well, well, but I, you can tell me about it <laughs> it's like melancholy and marginalized unhappy somewhat poor or economically vulnerable kids in the countryside yeah yeah, okay. yeah I, I see the references yes nostalgic Definitely. tragic yeah. um yeah, yeah. so boys oh. can write that stuff too i was just wondering do you know anything else about shoshinyu that i haven't covered there with my generalizations and stereotypes uh, yeah um so when I started looking into her, there isn't much available in English. I mean, as you said, because she's an, uh, I guess, early career writer, um, not so well known. No, yeah, not one of the big hitters at the moment. But I got a few sort of Chinese articles that I just dumped into DeepL and had a very badly translated just to get an idea of her background, um, and found out that she was um, she's a graduate of Tsinghua. Oh, and must be smart. Yeah. Um, and um, started as a journalist, but found that it didn't suit her. There were a lot of um, characteristics of being a journalist that um, she didn't enjoy and um, found too kind of constraining um, and wanted to kind of explore her own creative writing and stuff like that. Uh, but it, it also showed her sort of very um, thoughtfulness approach um, on her fiction writing, I think. She enjoyed, as much as I could tell, um, it seems like she enjoyed the people side of journalism, so finding out you know, about people's lives and stuff. Mm. Um, and I think that reflects a lot in the, the stories that I've read of hers. Um, so I would say f philosophy and um, life is probably her thing um, from her background, yeah. I mean, she uh, she seems like a really, really strong academic um, and really clever um, person. So, like, the thoughtfulness and the depth of the stories kind of, I think, reflect that. There was a podcast I was listening to recently. It was um, a podcast on a podcast. There's a, <laughs> I think, is she Chinese-American? I, I can't remember her name, but she did a, a podcast series, I think, for The Economist called The Prince, all about Xi Jinping and his his career and his life story and just as a sort of throwaway remark talking about the way she chose to do it she said something like um i became a journalist because i wanted to tell other people's stories and not mine i don't care so much about amplifying my own voice mm. i want to do that for other people and i guess if you're writing creative fiction mm. it is your own story you're putting out there but you could you could definitely see how if you had that journalistic uh, background or instinct that you mm. would have a way through representations and uh, fictionalizations yeah. to sort of play out the stories and tragedies and ironies of other people's lives because yeah. the story it you know it's 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 fantastical it's about an imaginary 
situation, but it deals with the Chinese countryside and less well-off people who live there. And that's, that is a real, real thing in Chinese society. It's probably the biggest divide, urban and rural. Yeah, totally. And actually just thinking about this story now, the, the role of the narrator, it very much feels like the role of a journalist, you know, because she's actually just watching Jiang Yang go through all this. Even though she's a friend of the protagonist, um, there's, is quite at arm's length. And the only time it connects kind of more, um, personally is right at the end, you know, when, when they actually go out, um, mining stars together. So I, I think that reflection is actually really nice. Um, thinking about, um, uh, Xu Xinyu's um, background and how that kind of brings it together. Yeah, I remember thinking when I was reading, I couldn't tell if the narrator was male or female. Um, I don't know That's I true. It. I think I assumed it. <laughs> I might have just assumed it. Yeah, because yeah. the her relation, his or well, the narrator's relationship with uh, Jiang Yang seems to be pretty platonic anyway. But yeah, yeah. If if readers want to read it really closely and make a definitive statement on that. Again, just get in touch. I'd be curious. Or if they've got thoughts, I'd be curious too. Yeah, definitely. I would love to know. Speaking on thoughts, um, mm -hmm. I thought we could move on to this um, somewhat deeper uh, discussion of the book. So first thing I thought we could talk about is staying on the thread of the, the characters. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the way I've written the question here is, what do you think the actions and the roles of the characters say? For example, is the story about lost innocence? Because like, the way you described those, how the stars are treated almost mm -hmm. sounds like a very easy metaphor for like childhood. You start off with all this potential. It could go out in all these different ways. You grow in size, but the potential, uh, potential diminishes. Mm -hmm. And then finally you become an economic asset. You're ground into <laughs> dust to be used for practical purposes. Yeah. But I don't <laughs> think the story neatly reduces to that metaphor. It, to me, no. it's sort of about the characters and the bigger mystery but like the action the actions of the characters and the roles they play in society are important i'm not sure if i have any deep thoughts about that but mm. do you i think the loss of innocence is is definitely there it's a, you know it's an is an easy like a, a a clear read of the story in that sense um there's also the commentary on privilege where you know the um the coolest kid gets the biggest star and the not so cool kid gets the smallest star. Um, but I think it also goes back to the ideas of identity um, because um, Jiang Yang being the only one who persisted um, in the passion of rear rearing stars, you say, or looking after stars was basically beaten. That was beaten out of him. Like, you know, he couldn't do anymore. And I think there's, Kind of what you said about, you know, us losing our um, individualism at, at a certain point, losing our innocence. Um, there's also uh, quite a, a strong reference to us losing our identities or losing sight of our identities, I think. You know, it's somewhere in us, but we're either not sure if it's there anymore or unwilling to bring it back out because society says we shouldn't. And I think that's that kind of question of what is society doing to us and or doing to kids um, and how that kind of affects the future of the kids and, and the, the future of the next generation, basically. Yeah. 
that's how I read it anyway. And and I think that kind of links a lot to Xiu Xin Yu's um, other story, which is The Strange Girl. I'm not sure if you read that one. I've not read it. Please okay. tell me about it. Uh, in very, very general summary, <laughs> she it's set in a world where I can't remember the precise reason, but we can't naturally have children anymore. And we've created um, fake wombs that can be placed. Oh, I have read this. Yeah, in men or women. But we can only have babies that are clones of ourselves. So um, in a couple, if you wanted a boy baby, then the man would have the womb and the man would then carry um, basically a miniature of himself and give birth to that child. Um, so it really questions, um, looks at the question of identity, you know, and, and how that kind of can create problems. Um, but with the, what I remember from it is that the protagonist um, is the only one who was naturally conceived in this world, or one of the only ones. Mm. And she was being alienated and othered, um, obviously, through the story. Right. I think I can um, continue that thread Mm -hmm. with my own interpretation and I'm basically gonna um, be an arch lefty here and make it all about economics because I think <laughs> that's in both stories mm -hmm. and if you don't if, if we don't want to make it a critique of capitalism if that's too much of a buzzword you could just say uh, a critique of like how everything gets oh there's a verb I'm looking for I can't think of it how everything gets um grabbed and used to serve material purposes rather than like creative or spiritual purposes. So mind. Mind, uh, yeah. Instrumentalized, that is the word. Yeah. That's the word. Um, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. in uh, the stars we raised, for, for no reason we ever learn these stars start appearing on Earth. Mm -hmm. And what is the first thing society decides to do with them? use them for some kind of economic gain or, or growth. Mm -hmm. So not not even necessarily to make a small number of people rich, although maybe that is happening, mm -hmm. but just to sort of fuel for the economy to provide work and uh, wealth. And the, the strange, it's a strange boy that wants to do something different with the stars, who's maybe a little bit damaged or has a slightly askew view of the world, but it's mm -hmm. this marginal, unusual person that wants to just nurture the stars for their own sake or something like that who doesn't want to in instru instrumentalize them for economic mm -hmm. gain and pretty much everyone in this story even the more benevolent characters are trying to stamp it out of them because in the world we live in be it a capitalist system or a economic growth focused socialist or communist system that's the imperative it's material material mm. growth yeah. we don't really have many hippy dippy societies that would go for anything different. And then in um, the other story, sorry, I forgot the name, what was it? The, um, the Strange Girl. The Strange Girl, well, clues in the name, she's a strange girl. <laughs> yeah. But you have something maybe even more interesting where alternative sort of economic ways of organizing families arise, mm -hmm. where it becomes more like a clan system. So we learn the information is drip fed to us, but we realize there's like a all male family where everyone is a clone of one guy. Yeah and they all support each other in a way very what's the word i don't know it's a very mutually supportive um system where some have an income and if say it's say it's mm. 10 angus's running a family of angus's if angus one needs a bit of support to get on let's say the property ladder that's on my mind right now mm. then angus five and angus nine might give him some money mm. 
And I guess that's families do work a bit like that, but it's changing the whole way the economy works in that society into something more clannish. Um, yeah. And the character who can't fit into that is is marginalized and alienated in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know how if I can make such a deep comment on that, but it's an interesting theme that how marginalized you are might have something to do with the economic order or at least materialism in general. Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree with that because um, it fits into the um, it fits into the factory model, right? If you're factory made, you're easy to handle. If you're an individual, um, you are sort of handmade. You're crafted. You know, you're, you're harder to handle. But I guess the alternate, um, the, the the question that I would throw back into it is, um, handmade things sort of last longer and are better quality. So. Maybe we should see more stories that are like that, <laughs> just to question it. But yeah, I, I can agree with you on on all that you said in terms of the capitalist model of the stories. Um, it's a little bit sad, but I think it's very befitting of the current situation economically, where I think we're in a period that's called what the the great um, oh, what was it great reset. No, the great acceleration. The great acceleration. Yeah, you know the extreme development and modernization and all that kind of stuff. That um, everything that doesn't fit into progress, you know, becomes marginalized. Mm-hmm. If it can't move fast enough, it can't keep up. Yeah. Yeah, and if listeners are wondering, like, how how would it, how would this relate to them? If anyone's done what I've done, my girlfriend's done this, where you have a shot at, and you might know something about this, Yen, where you go off the beaten path and you do what you want, but it involves not being in like a nine to five job Mm -hmm. when you have to pay your bills. Life becomes about at least three times harder. It's so much simpler. And I've accepted this and I'm enjoying this. (laughs) It's so much simpler if you're in a conventional job, nine to five with a salary, or at least a a regular wage. When you become irregular, then yeah, life just weighs, weighs down on you that much harder. Um, I'm not saying anything very original here, but I think it relates to this kid's journey in the story. Definitely. I'm still in the irregular life while I'm trying to finish my PhD. So, um, um, see, you know, let's catch up in two years and see (laughs) what I'm doing then. But I I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. That was actually the, the point I also was thinking as you were describing the plot of the story. The one one of the places where we can find some shelter from like the sort of um, hardcore economic imperative is education, mm-hmm. and as children, we're lucky enough to enjoy that shelter. So mm-hmm. it's not just as a kid that you uh, don't have to work to feed your family if you're in a developed country with child labor laws. It's also that in school you've got a chance to develop yourself, and you don't have to give a return on investment, mm-hmm. or maybe you do, but it's much further down the line when you. Yeah. And and you're not aware of it. (laughs) Yeah, that's (laughs) yes. You're not cursed with the knowledge either. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. And and for this story to be set a lot during those school days, um, in a way that's actually very political because you see the um, hierarchy of the kids straight away, Um, and you know there's no free there's none of that freedom that we think of you know that children have. And maybe and that's a little bit sad, but um, it's also very real, mm-hmm. which I think um, reflects you know that whole capitalist hierarchy and, um, and troubles kind of very well. I think I, should, I think she hit it on the nail. 
yeah yeah those things can affect you you're not in the working world but the inequalities of mm-hmm. yeah the society you're in can still hit you indirectly for sure i think i realized a little too late in high school that some of the more the less the less cool less socially adept kids were maybe in that situation because they were from the council estate rather than the nice the nice suburbs most of me and my pals were from or that they had a uh, problems with their mom or their dad mm-hmm. i realized that one a bit late yeah as as we said like as kids we weren't very aware <laughs> of what's happening around us and i guess you know sometimes it's it's nicer not to know right yeah you don't want to <laughs> don't want to ruin your the, your children's cozy world for sure yeah. um we've talked a while and i, I want to mm-hmm. keep us moving so okay. i thought we could talk a bit about the setting mm-hmm. now i've read quite a lot of chinese sci-fi and translation i think that's true for you too mm-hmm. so i wonder if you've also felt that down one of the sort of settings and stories in these stories you can can encounter despite mm-hmm. it being sci-fi is like a downbeat rural setting um yeah. Where these younger writers, it seems, especially, are writing their stories or setting their stories in. So, like, what do you think's going on there? Why? Why are the younger writers doing that in a sci-fi genre? Shouldn't young people be, um, I don't know, cyberpunk or space travelers? Why are they all going down to the countryside to borrow a mainland Chinese phrase? <laughs> down to the countryside. I I recently read a lot of so news pieces and stuff <clears throat> about the problems of. Um, so the Chinese uh, countryside and immigration, you know, of mass immigration of people into towns and cities, um, at of of the working age. So countryside becoming where the very old or the very young end up um, being, and I think a lot of young writers. Um, um, I'm assuming this, um, but I'm I'm thinking that a lot of young writers probably have a sort of split. Um, intention or you know on on or or split kind of personality is the wrong word or passion actually where they're having to consider do i continue my life in a big city and get a job like how my parents are doing etc so to get money or do i think about my childhood where i was raised in the countryside and you know i had a really lovely grandparent um to look after me fresh air, all that kind of stuff. And their nostalgia is the countryside, whereas their the push that they're getting from everyone around them is to kind of be in the cities, right? To develop themselves, um, to find money to, to earn and find a career and all that kind of stuff. And I think that split is actually very difficult to manage. I mean, I don't know it because I've always been in the city all my life, but you know, I'm split in terms of diaspora. So I've tra- I've been in different countries, and I've um, had different. My childhood is Malaysia. My adulthood is um, UK, and even then, I feel a bit kind of drawn from both places. And I think this is their way of trying to work it out, trying to work out what's right, what's wrong, um, where they want to be, how they find themselves in the situation. You know, because there's um also some news stories about how um, young people who are in sort of, what do they call it, 996 jobs, 9 to 9, 6 days a week jobs, yeah, yeah. Um, are completely burnt out. Yeah, they, they quit that and kind of want to go back to the countryside and be farmers. You know, there's a lot of cases of that happening. 
And that is that kind of nostalgia pulling them back in, in some ways, or the idea that there's peace and quiet somewhere that they can find, because um, that's the only two options they have, I guess, or they, that they see they have. Um, and I guess until someone finds something in between that's a little bit more interesting, um, it's probably going to be a bit hard for them to, to figure it out. But that, that is a very big deal, I think, right now in, um, in China and in the uh, young people. Yeah, I'm glad I'm not in a 1996 working hour system. Yeah. That would be awful. The Jiu Jiu Liu Gong Zuo Zhi, I think. I yeah, just that's read the that one. On Wikipedia. Yeah. Don't that is the one. <laughs> um, yeah. Whilst, whilst you, you used the word nostalgia, and that yeah. reminded me uh, an easy an easy conversational and pseudo intellectual talking point is the etymology of nostalgia. This, mm. this is a good one. Uh, it derives from the Greek words nostos, return, and algos, pain. So the literal mm. meaning of the word nostalgia, at least in its two roots, is the suffering evoked by the desire to return to one's place of origin. And mm. that's that's a pretty good description of the Chinese rural sci-fi that I've read. It's yeah. um. It's not. It it doesn't shy away from the painful sides of poverty in the countryside. No, but in some ways, it sees it as um, magical and endearing. I guess is is a good word for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, endearing. That's a perfect word. Yeah. Um, I thought to to follow on this one, we could think about other like r rural stories we've read, be it mm. from from uh, the UK where we are now or China. Mm. I've got a couple examples. Um, so, like from China, the Chinese that I've read, the other authors who seem to like going to the countryside are uh, maybe even two generations above these. The like the post the the reform and opening the writers who blew up in the eighties and nineties, like the Japing Was, the Mo Yans, mm -hmm. A lot of them seem to like to set stories in the Chinese countryside, mm. and I've I think I've heard and would kind of agree based on what I've read that. Some of that is about trying to find like a real sort of root of mm -hmm. of the society, or at least of their regional culture. Like Japing Wa loves to try and in his uh, later writing is trying to get to the the soul of Shanxi Province, mm -hmm. and maybe the soul of of China as well. And I think that's interesting because I don't think that's what's going on in the um in these in the the two or three rural Chinese sci-fi stories I've read. I don't feel like it's it's maybe looking at national issues, but I don't feel like there's any soul searching about like how the the authenticity of a peasant lifestyle. I don't mm -hmm. feel like that's a concern for these writers. And then thinking of like um, writers in the UK that have gone to the countryside, I can think of a couple a couple examples. There's um, from Scotland. There's I read this one for school. Full disclosure. Uh, there's a trilogy called The Scots Square, and the first one is called Sunset Song. It's pretty good, and it's kind of a similar thing. It's like romantic, but also brutally honest about like the countryside lifestyle, the being a farmer in northeast Scotland, which was not on its way out during the setting of the story, but I think as the trilogy drags on, the character moves to the city, and the rural life yeah. is sort of eclipsing. So there's some comparison there. And then the other one I would think of is like folk horror. Writers who like to write have weird things happen in a strange village or something. Like Robert Aikman is a writer I like that does that. Mm. And to me, that doesn't really have any bearing on the Chinese sci-fi. But I was just wondering if you have any other 
Yeah. I, I found them. I found this question really hard because <laughs> mm. I couldn't. It's actually very hard to think of anything that is set in the countryside. But one came to mind, um, which is a book by Elizabeth Wong called right. "We Could Not See the Stars." Ah, um, stars again. Yeah, stars again. Exactly, precisely. Um, and this is SFF. Um, and I say this. I say the second F because it is a bit more fantastical, just like. This the the story that we're talking about mm, really yeah. um, is more on the fantasy side than on sort of hard sci-fi, which is another question that is coming up. <laughs> but so Elizabeth Wong's "We Could Not See the Stars" um, is set in sort of Malaysia or Malaya, um, however you want to see the setting of it, um, and it moves from the city out into the countryside um, in the storyline um, and ends in the countryside. But what was amazing um, for me about it, and, and this is a full spoiler. So, like, I'm really sorry to anyone who wants to read it and has not read it. The in search for identity um, or the culture of this um, of the main protagonist, they go out into the countryside, and they end up finding that the countryside in the mountains and stuff like that is where their their species had originated from, or their kind has have originated from. And is also where um, I can't remember whether it's a spaceship or whether it's um, a portal, but it's where they can kind of connect with their own kind mm. from there. But the entire book is about the journey, moving out from the city and going into the countryside. And I love that magical realism of the um, of the of the um, countryside of nature, you know, of all that kind of stuff. And I think there's some sort of um, Overlap, I guess, with um, Susan Yu's story because there is that magical notion. I mean, in the city, even though people saw um, stars appear, they never thought to pick it up, and they said, "Oh my God, it's going to be like um, unhealthy for our kids. We're not going to touch it." You know, it's in the countryside that you get to explore this um, this magic that appears, you know, in front of our eyes, and that slight naivety you know um, is also what's beautiful about the countryside I guess um, mm. and in Elizabeth Wong's book she turns it around and makes it the kind of more clever thing rather than the city being the clever thing the um, the countryside is the clever thing um, and I can see that wanting to happen with this story but it didn't quite go there this is a short story and that's a novel, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not a, not a fair fight. No, <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Uh, I got one more question about the, um, the sort of content of the story itself. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and this is potentially spicy, potentially completely unspicy, mm -hmm. given the nature of the food I'm about to bring up. Would you say this is a story in the style of Xia Jia's porridge sci-fi? And for listeners who've never run into porridge sci-fi before, this was um, something... Uh, a slightly older, but not much older, sci-fi writer called Xia Jia, who's been on this show, um, and we've, I think we've talked about porridge sci-fi before. This is something she proposed that it's a kind of sci-fi that's softer than soft. So hard, for again, listeners who've never heard about hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. Hard sci-fi has real science in it, uh, physics, maths, maybe biology, chemistry. Very often it's about <clears throat> space travel, um, the characters might be um, 
kind of just mouthpieces for scientific ideas. Yeah, that I guess that's hard sci-fi, and that was traditionally. Well, maybe I'm talking. I'm talking nonsense, but I think in the <clears throat> what is it? The golden age of sci-fi, hard sci-fi was dominant. Softer sci-fi might be more about social questions rather than scientific questions. Like J.G. Ballard in the New Wave that came after is softer in that sense. <clears throat> or it might be more about characters, their relationships, their feelings, but with some element of sci-fi still there. Mm. And Xia Jia's powered sci-fi is basically saying it's pushing soft to its limit and suggesting that her some of her stories and maybe some other Chinese sci-fi are porridge sci-fi. I think that's basically it. And I would probably say, without hopefully not enraging too many people, I read this as porridge sci-fi, which is not a criticism. Yeah. No. Um, and, and I agree, it's not a criticism. I would start by saying that porridge is a really interesting word that is used because um, Joel in Mandarin is what you know um, I would think of as porridge and most Chinese people would think of as porridge, but it's actually rice porridge, mm -hmm. not oat porridge. Yes. Um, and so it's very watery rather than stodgy like um, oat. So it's even more <laughs> watery and even more um, liquid, I guess. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of visual always comes to me when we talk about porridge sci-fi. Part of me don't like the term porridge sci-fi, but in the spirit of Xiaoja, when you know, when I chatted with her and whenever she talks about porridge sci-fi, she owns it. She absolutely owns it. And I love that. Um, and if we are going to go down that route, then I would say, yes, this is porridge sci-fi insofar as it's about people. You know, it's a character-driven story and it's um, one of the best things about sci-fi coming out today is that we're getting a lot more humanistic, um, human-driven stories. Mm. And yeah, definitely, this is this is porridge sci-fi. <laughs> Amen. I was, it never occurred to me before, but if if Joel Kohan, if porridge sci-fi can be a thing, mm -hmm. if it's the softer than soft sci-fi, what's the harder than hard sci-fi called? Ooh. Kevlar sci-fi. <laughs> yeah. Where it gets so realistic, it becomes grim. I feel like if that's almost sounds like three-body problem, Except it's, I don't know, I feel like the grimness in that is more about game theory, sort of, than than physics. You see, I, I don't see harder than hard sci-fi being so grim or realistic. I see it more as extremely technical right. and data-driven. Data-driven. Like, kind of, you know, just data dumps, basically. Right. Yeah, just pure, like, a bordering into non-fiction. Yeah. Hmm. Basically, yeah. Right. That's that's how I see the the soft and hard skill. Um, but there is um, I'm gonna look for a term. Oh, um, have you heard of the term chao chao huan? Chao huan, yes. Um, yeah, like extreme, not sci-fi, but chao like super, as in like. Yeah. So super. That yeah. Exactly. Chao like super. Super fiction. Um, super fantasy. Yeah, it's supposed to um, be the genre for the sort of realistic sci-fi fiction. Right. So it, it's super real sci-fi, <laughs> I guess. The the ultra unreal is um, there's a there's a blog on China Channel that um, mm -hmm. 
I think is going into this. I'm going to link to that, but um, maybe I can find some even better ones. I I seem yeah. to remember uh, that. I've got two articles here. Um, yeah. Hang on. Let, let me pull it nice. up. Now. Let's do a, a Chao Huan style dump into the show notes of all this information for the listeners. Yeah. Is this the one that Ken Ken Ning wrote about? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the one. I've only just started looking into it, so I'm not. Um, there's a LitHub article that um, Ken Ning Ning Ken um, wrote it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the one. That's excellent. So, so yeah. we found not only a harder than hard sci-fi, but a, <coughs> a harder than hard sci-fi that is also from China. Victory. I suppose that's the power of numbers. You've got so many people producing so many styles. Yeah. Um, the second one is, is just a mention of it. That's one of the um, subgenres. Ultra and real. Magical. I thought for our next little section, we could talk yeah. about the book that this story appears in, in translation, because this has come up on my show's news segments, mm-hmm. I reckon, at least three times. And this is very interesting. It's the way spring arrives. <clears throat> so I can introduce it really quickly. Uh, this one has come out via Tor in the US, and I believe Head of Zeus in the UK. So it's the same sort of pattern as uh, Ken Leo's translations to the Shin books. Uh, and like Ken Leo's Invisible Planet and Broken Stars anthologies. It's it's an anthology of short stories in Chinese sci-fi, but it's a little different for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, the lesser reason is that it's not just sci-fi; it's fantasy and other genre fictions as well. But the big the big selling point is that it's by uh, all female and non-binary writers and translators. I believe there's no male translators either. Um, yes. So I've I've not read all this book yet. I do think it's in, just interesting in itself. And it's interesting that it, it has also got a Chinese version now. The stories were compiled in the original language and have come out in the mainland as well, which is really cool. But anyway, what do you have any thoughts about this book that you can share with the listeners? Um, I think it's about time <laughs> that something like that came out. To be honest, from a researcher perspective, one of the biggest problems that we have is we want to stop talking about Liu Cixin <laughs> or, <laughs> uh, and then Chen Fan, and then Hans, you know, and Han Song and all, all these, um, their, their stories are amazing and it's all out there and it's brilliant. But because it's becoming an echo chamber, it, it, it makes it really hard for anything else to come in. So putting something like this book out, I think, um, is really difficult and so well done to everyone who's kind of um, put it together and is needed because when we try and put together shows um, or events or panels and stuff like that and we go who should we talk about or which writer should we kind of invite in um, we want a broader range of people to kind of pick from and if especially when because this is a lot of this is translated fiction is so difficult if they're not already translated to bring them in um you know there's only that much that we can do as non-translators um to talk about their work but unless their work is actually accessible to other people in different languages um there's not much that we can do about it so I think it's really needed and um hopefully it springboards you know the, the next kind of um the next sets of anthologies or it gets more um, writers who are 
um, female and non-binary like more publishing um, routes and stuff overseas internationally and stuff. Yeah, I think it's really good. Um, I think there are three of such anthologies in China, and this is the f the one that's available in English for us. Or I think um, I can sure. double check that um, if you give me a minute. I'll say, hang on, if I can remember, mm -hmm. what was I going to say? Oh yeah, I remember. So um, a thing I find I f I found noticeable, especially in Ken Liu's second anthology, Broken Stars, is that he, he I think he even uh, underlined it in the intro, he said he'd gone out of his way a little bit to bring in uh, more authors, um, so less re less um, repeat stories for, like, say, Liu Sushin and a wider range of authors, younger authors especially, mm -hmm. and a lot of those mm -hmm. younger authors he brought into the anthology were were women. But then once you finish the book, that, that's it. You've not got a whole lot more to find in print. But online, I, I say this quite a lot on the show, but I can't say enough. There is really quite a huge amount of translated Chinese sci-fi short stories. Um, probably the vast majority are up on clarksworld.com, yeah. um, but they are up, up on other places too. And Definitely. if you spend a bit of time trawling through them, you'll realize a lot of them are by um, female writers. I don't know if it's more than half, but it's... Mm -hmm. It's a noticeably um, high portion, uh, but it's it's all very well something being online. That's not really something where the mainstream mm -hmm. masses of readers are going to go to to read to read this stuff, and it's not served yeah. to them in a particular way, packaged with intros and essays, which is a cool thing about the way Spring arrives. I had a look at the contents page, and I can see there's several essays in there, translated essays mm -hmm. as well as translated fiction, which is really cool. Um, so yeah, just the fact yeah. getting something into yeah. print or even into an ebook is um, makes it, I think, a little bit more real in the minds of readers than a vast archive of web pages that you can scroll down and read as short stories, which are great and it's fantastic because they're free to access. But getting something into print makes it just that little bit more real, both in terms of readership, but also maybe like the careers of these translators and these these writers as well. So just just from that publishing angle, it's it's a big deal, I think. Um, I have to mention that all the stuff that we see on Clark's World, like a lot of it is because of Regina Kanye Wang and the way Spring arrives is because of Regina Kanye Wang. I mean, among a lot of others who've put in a lot of time as well. But, you know, without, um, you know, if Kelly is to be talked about in terms of bringing Chinese sci-fi to all of us, I think Regina needs to be kind of acknowledged as the one who brings female and non-binary writers you know into our um into our world into our much yeah. needed sci-fi world yeah and i i've noticed in her stories and in topics she, she talks about she's like gender non-binary or just questions around gender that you can represent in fiction is something that mm -hmm. i guess it's something she has an interest in or at least it's not something she sighs away from and yeah. i think that's that's pretty cool because yeah. in all the translated chinese sci-fi i read don't, I don't. I've come across that in one other book just recently, a Sinoist books translation of Shetia Sheng's My Travels in Ding Yi has some uh, thoughts on mm -hmm. gender and what it means to people in their relationships. And he, he was writing that mm -hmm. in like the the noughties, I think, which really blew my mind. But prior to that, literally, I think the only person I'd seen touching on it so directly is um, is Regina, and it's cool that she's. Kind of, although this is, I think if you'd run the numbers, it's much more a female book, but it's in there, it's baked into the marketing of the book and it's, 
it's it's from this yeah. Sinosphere, mainland China, and some of the other Chinese-speaking places, which is just striking to me, and it's impressive. Yeah, definitely, and and it's both um, from the fiction and the non-fiction perspective. So, um, because Regina, Regina and I work a lot around the academia side of um, Chinese sci-fi research, um, her papers and talks around what she calls the her story of Chinese sci-fi rather than the history um, is brilliant. Um, and it's definitely something that I think a lot of us need to kind of follow and look into. Yeah. Um, there's also this collection. I don't know if you've seen this yet. The New Voices. So Yen is holding up a book with <laughs> I'll try and describe it. Um, an, a nice paperback <laughs> that says Chinese science fiction in great big letters. Just new voices in Chinese science fiction. It says uh, new voices in Chinese science fiction. And it's, you know, edited by Neil Clark of um, Clark's World, obviously. But it's um, Xiaojia and Regina that's worked on this, you know, on bringing this together. Um, and yeah, and it's got lots of the names of the writers who. I only used to hear among um, people who read in Chinese, and now they're translated and they're coming through. So I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Hell yeah! I had a, a question here if we wanted to compare *The Way Spring Arrives* to other books that are out there. I don't mm -hmm. know if I have anything really all that deep to say. Just that I could underline there is quite a few of these things now. These anthologies of short stories from Chinese sci-fi writers. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if if people want to get this stuff in print, I you could you could fill up a significant slice of a shelf on your in your bookshelf if if you so definitely. Please. I don't know if I have, if I have any smart comparisons because I've not read the way Spring <laughs> arrives, which kind of <laughs> that's a hurdle I can't jump yet. As as you said, they're they're very like with the Ken Liu anthologies um, in the format that they're in because you know they're the um, academic papers or the more critical. Uh, reading papers um, that are slipped in between the stories, which um, kind of is really smart in a way because um, a lot of people who read Chinese sci-fi are studying it or want to research about it and stuff. So it um, attracts both sets of readership. But what I would say now is in the English science fiction mainstream market, we're always told that anthologies don't sell. Um, and for a reason, because people who read short stories know where to find them a lot of the times. Right. And people who read books read books, read novels. Um, and, you know, those two, um, it's, it's only a small percentage of us who kind of read both, um, like, all the time. So I would say that I hope that what all these anthologies do at the moment is that it paves the way for publishers to be kind of braver in publishing longer works from all these authors since you know that hopefully is the stepping stone for them to kind of get out there into the market and so we can start reading more novels from um, all these writers i think that would be amazing yeah and as far as i'm aware um in this wave of this wave of chinese sci-fi we have one novel by a female uh writer translated and published, and that's uh, Hao Jingfang's Vagabonds, translated by Ken mm -hmm. Liu. And I'm, as far as I'm aware, that's the last big piece of Chinese sci-fi that Ken Liu worked on. He's 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 yeah. back on his own work just now. So we've, there's yeah. a, there's a small handful. Well, there's a lot of Liu Cixin in English now. There's a yeah. little smattering of well, there's 
there's um Tinsel fans. Oh yep. Race tide. Uh yeah. Hansong's hospital is on its way. It's very That's exciting. That's right. That's Nathaniel's um Isaacson's um translation. Oh no, it's not. Is it, it not? It's Michael Berry. Oh, well, is it? Yeah. Um Nathaniel is a Hansong guy, but um but he didn't do that one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. A few of his short stories. And okay. then there's a there's a there's a more obscure Wang Jin Kang one out mm. through Amazon Crossing. Mm -hmm. I think that's it for novels. Um, I don't. I don't think there's any other Chinese sci-fi novels, and it's just one by a woman. I mean, in translation, I mean. Um, there is um, the Strange Beasts of um, China. Oh yes, yes. If we if we want it, that's if we want to group that in sci-fi. Yeah. Probably would have popped that in fantasy myself. Yeah. But. Yeah, I mean, it's, to yeah. over that one. no, um, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm usually on the SF side. <laughs> I'm just trying to pull things into it right now to kind of make it look a bit nicer. But you're right, there's, um, there's not that much um, out there. And it does feel like it's quietened down a little bit with a lot of the other media stuff coming up, I think. Um, you know, with, um, I think Kelly's had some bits um, in production and also on Netflix already. And with Lucia scenes, how many versions of <laughs> Three Body Problem coming out? Mm, I think we're getting two. I, I want to say three. I think that's like oh. two, like TV series and one animated series. Oh right, gosh. Yeah, and they're all coming out at the same time. So you know, I think it's just going to drown out a lot of other stuff at the moment. Right. So I'll take us on to our next section now. This is just sort of general stuff about. Chinese sci-fi, since we're both co one heads, this is kind of our respective wheelhouses as far as Chinese lit and translation goes. So I'll just ask you what, which um, Chinese sci-fi writers and stories are your personal favourites? Like, do any leap to the front of your mind? Uh, yes, um, most of Regina Kanyu Wang's short stories. I find her work um, speaks to me a lot especially sort of the recent stories like um there's one called the the cyber cascuta and there's another one called the the language sheath yeah the language sheath was really interesting um because when i read it i just thought you're describing a diaspora um person um relationship a diaspora person's relationship with um, language and when we had more in-depth discussions around the story um i don't know why i this never occurred to me before it's probably just me not being very open with my thinking but um uh, the problems with um the colonialism of the mandarin language in china is you know a big problem and um it obviously applies as well as to um all the local people in China losing their dialects or topolags or, you know, um, however you want to call that. And that speaks to the same kind of issues that um, diaspora communities have. So that was really interesting. But I find Regina's stories generally really um, sensitive and um, engaging to current issues. So I absolutely would recommend them. And just in terms of the wider um, Chinese sci-fi, as I mentioned before, my research and my definition of Chinese sci-fi covers um, diaspora mm. writers as well. Um, I would mention um, 
I really, really love Maggie Shen King's um, An Excess Mail. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah, and I just love the concept. And I, I think, um, you know, that I would definitely recommend that as, um, as something to read. Um, and something that's a little bit more fantasy based is um, Elizabeth Wong's uh, We Could Not See the Stars. Um, and that, again, because it speaks to the Malaysian in me and is very rare to see something that's quite Southeast Asian in flavor to be represented in sort of main, mainstream publication. Um, just really nice, um, sort of fantastical writing, sort of bridging between sci-fi and fantasy, actually, but um, just really beautiful. Mm, awesome. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll do a full disclosure for the listeners because I think it might illuminate mm -hmm. our conversation. Uh, just bef mm -hmm. between this let's get very general and the questions about the way spring arrives, a day has passed. Where we're splitting the recording in two. And the reason I'm bringing up that up is I had a something occurred to me about our conversation. I, perhaps it was a shower thought or a walking home from work thought. I remember I said I hadn't encountered any authors apart from Regina and Shi Tiesheng who tackled gender kind for pretty head on. I remembered actually a book we've you already mentioned in this episode, Yang Ge's Strange Beasts of China. I don't mm, know if she throws yeah. the word gender around, but it's very much there in one, maybe one, definitely at least one, yeah. maybe two or more of the chapters. So she would be the third, the third name in there. Actually, the protagonist in in that book specifically is a really, really well written one because it's it's one of those where you kind of look at it and you go. You kind of expect a male protagonist, but the role, I mean, it is a female protagonist and it's quite a strong, but neutral strong rather than an in-your-face strong mm. um, character. So I, yeah, absolutely love that book and it was, it was a really good one. Totally. Yeah. I enjoyed it as well. Yeah. And very nicely translated. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I encourage listeners to listen to my episode on it that's got uh, Yang herself and the translator Jeremy together and that's a powerful combo. Um, yeah. Indeed. The other thing I thought I would mention is, yeah, like you, 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 you talked a bit about it just now, and we were getting into it yesterday as well. That if you extend, um, if you extend your definition of Chinese sci-fi outside of just Chinese language into diaspora, mm -hmm. the the number of novels extends hugely. And I've read one that that fits falls into this wider category by a Chinese American. Uh, offer and it, I think it pretty much is sci-fi, um, mm. definitely soft sci-fi or social sci-fi or something. Um, it's Ling Ma's Severance. That is one of my favorite mm. books that I've read in the last. I was about to say year. I think perhaps time has moved a bit faster than I'm remembering. Might be the last few years, but that's one of the best novels. Full stop. Never mind the Chinese qualifier. I've read in quite a while partly because of how eerily it predicted or was mirrored by COVID-19, but also just, I think it's right up my alley, just personally in that it's dark, it's reflective, it's a bit uh, off, I don't know if off key, off kilter. It's got a little bit of an askew view of things. So I'd recommend that. And often in actual, well, I almost said actual, as if I have to qualify it as authentic, but in Kehuan, a word I'm using the same way Shui Tingni's uses first Chinese lit Chinese sci-fi from from the Mandarin speaking world. I guess mm -hmm. my faves are the same people who are a little bit weird, or a little bit darker, and out of mm -hmm. stuff I've read, I think it's the Gen Xers who are a shade darker usually. 
So that's why Han Song is a big fave of mine. Han, Han Song's an interesting writer for me because I mean the, his stories are amazing. His his imagination is amazing, but the gender stuff is a little bit hard to swallow sometimes. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, score as well there as the as the younger writers. No, and neither does no. the opposition. The opposition no. is probably worse. Yeah. Although you could, I'm sure you could debate that. <laughs> Yeah, but probably a lot of my favorite stories are from those authors. It's not fair because they got novels out. Even uh, we've, we've even got Hajin Fang has her novel out. But um, if I was to name it a few more, not Hajin Fang's Vagabonds, I did not. That didn't blow me away, but her um, mm. Folding Beijing did. Because uh, yeah. again, yeah. the social side of the sci-fi is just amazing there. Er, yeah. Han Song, most of the short stories I've read just so up my alley, just personally. Mm. And then the other one that's a fave of mine, I don't know if you would count him as an elder millennial or a young Gen Xer. Mm. Labels are useless. Uh, Chen Xiu Fan, mm. he's mm -hmm. not all of his stories are right up my alley, but his weirder, darker ones. Again, that's yeah. that's my cup yeah. of tea. I mean, he's, he's another one who goes for the um, current issues um, and engagement with everything that's happening around us right now. Um, so that definitely one that, you know, Waste, Waste Tide is a great book for um, critical studies, right. <laughs> for research, because there's so many topics in there that is, um, you know, that we can discuss till the next year and we'll still be discussing it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, he, is, he is a really good um, writer and he he's... I think there at this, the right time, the right place, um, especially with um, uh, what is it called? AI twenty twenty four. Twenty forty two. Twenty forty one. I think yeah. they wrote it in to come out in twenty one. So yeah, that's the one. Yeah, my hot yeah. take about Chen Fan is that side of his writing, like the current issues, something you could mm -hmm. analyze very directly, is my least favorite stuff. The side of Chen Fan I like is where it's like getting really weird um like his mm. state of trance where shanghai is breaking down and the main character just wants to return a book to the library but reality mm. is dissolving a uh, year of the rats which does you could analyze it mm. in terms of politics or society or something but it's also okay. just what the hell is going on um the the weirder strange stranger stuff there's one i did on the pod uh with it's the Francesco Verso, who translated, uh, mm -hmm. who published it in Italian translation, that's a very mysterious, strange book. Mm -hmm. And my analysis of that got into bizarre territory where it's like, I, does this make sense outside of my head? I don't know. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of Chinese, that's the kind of sci-fi I've seen from mainland Chinese writers that um, really does it for me. Mm -hmm. um, plus there's Severance. Okay. I just love Severance. I haven't read Severance and it's on my to read pile. So I'm, I'm nodding away going, yes, please. I'm going to read that next. Mm. But um, can I also tell your listeners mm. to go read your story in <laughs> Aptera 2021? Because now this explains a lot. Right. Where, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think it's that dark, but I think it's dark enough to um, make a lot of mainstream sci-fi readers just question a few things <laughs> in that story. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, Thank you. And um, my co-editor, when we were both working on it, I, she had a bit more trouble getting into it because it was a little bit deeper than um, a lot of stuff that we've got or, you know, a lot of the mainstream stuff out there. So definitely a lot of thought and a lot of um, 
undercurrents um, in there. Yeah, definitely go read go read Angus's story in um, Aptara twenty twenty one. All right, I should do some self promotion here. I've done this through the yeah. podcast's um, mm -hmm. social media channels. I'm not sure I've done it on the show. So I wrote a story um, for the anthology that uh, Yen helps uh, put together for Brain Mill Press called Aptera. Uh, they've got two two editions out. It's a yearly thing. Are you going to keep doing more? Is yeah, one every year? We are. We're, we're currently um, editing 2022. Oh, very exciting. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I've got a short story in the second one called Meta Shanghai. And mm -hmm. it's... It's awesome. It's <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It was an attempt to get a lot of stuff I had that I had been inspiration from reading um, weird, strange fiction and a lot of inspiration from probably from Tenshio Fan actually learning the things that he's interested in and thinking about how he distilled them in like he's a he's a huge Lovecraft fan he's a pretty un unapologetic fan of cyberpunk which is not it's I feel like cyberpunk is a bit like the new metal from around the millennium it's easy to make fun of and say it's dated and yet it's got that sort of trashy appeal there as well so I was trying to combine all those things into a story and you know I'm I'm clearly not Chinese, so what perspective can I bring there that's interesting? Mm -hmm. And also, what was I doing at the time I was planning the story? I was playing far too much SimCity. So the premise of the story is a guy builds Shanghai, a guy who misses Shanghai a lot. Who could it be? Builds, <laughs> builds um, uh, Shanghai in a SimCity lookalike game, and it—I don't know. This makes it sound really lame, but it, it comes alive. The city becomes something he installs a bunch of mods and the mods lock together in a way that produces disturbing cyber gothic effects so that's the story and you got to buy the aptera anthology to to find out what happens brilliant thank you for for pushing yeah. me towards <laughs> towards that <laughs> no it's 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 brilliant and i absolutely love it and i mean speaking about non-chinese people writing um chinese sci-fi um one of the books that I came across in the beginning of my Chinese sci-fi search is um, Jonathan Tell's The Beijing of Impossible Beijing of Possibilities. If you've not read it, read it. That sounds um, yeah, I, I absolutely love it um, because you know there is something really important as well of the um, the the gaze of the outsider, you know, in into Chineseness in general and stuff like that and. It was a really, really fun collection of short stories, I thought, um, that spanned all sorts of stuff. But there was one that um, will always stand out for me, which is a courtship between a current modern man in, in the current world who's just a sort of nine, well, I guess the 996 worker, <laughs> he's an office guy, um, with someone f uh, with a like a princess-like character, uh, one of the, the um, I guess Emperor's Daughters or something from ancient China yeah. and somehow she got her hands on a mobile phone and then they create this um, courtship over phone you know where text messaging and, and photos and stuff like that I, I can't remember much more of it but I love the premise so much because who imagines stuff like that you know <laughs> That's cool. and it's just a yeah, it's a really, really cool kind of imagery that he gives. But yeah, that's that's worth looking at too. Nice. Yeah, I, I won't wax on and on and on about my own writing, but I do think from having read some stuff, uh, good 
to bad to evil. I think mm. I, the, 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 the Westerner writing st- stuff set in China can be done in all sorts of ways. Um, mm. you, it, it, you can certainly, with, with all the best intentions, come off like an asshole or a fool, mm-hmm. um, but that's no reason to d- dismiss it all or, um, or, not, or not to try. Even. Yeah, completely. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, there are perspectives that need to be seen. So, you know, it's, they're all valid in that sense. Yeah. And I love them all. And, and I mean, I, that's a, a very small slither of the research that I do, um, which is not going to make it into my PhD, but I still love that section of reading just how others write about, um, China or Chineseness in science fiction. Yeah. All right. And I'll, I'll flip, flip the script on you. I know that you write some fiction. <laughs> Um, so what is that <laughs> yeah. fiction? Please promote it now. Uh, but also, <laughs> has reading Chinese sci-fi um, from you know from the mainland or from the diaspora or from the the Sinosphere like Malaysia has any of that yeah. influenced the stuff that you write? Um, it's definitely influenced how I write. And from the perspective of my research, I would say that something cultural or cultural writing like Chinese sci-fi, in whatever form you want to take it um, in decolonizes the wider genre. It helps push the boundaries um, of what the genre will accept and expect, you know, from the readership. Um, And I think it's fantastic because it creates imagination, creativity, and, you know, all all that kind of stuff. And this applies to all the other um, subgenres like Afrofuturism or um, I don't know what you call the um, the, the Latin uh, Futurism. Is there another word? Amazon futurism or something. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've no yeah. idea, but um, yeah. sounds awesome. So something that I find really interesting at the moment is that um, I think we mentioned the, the great acceleration um, when we talked um, before. And Asia itself is, you know, um, a whole kind of continent that has been playing catch up with the rest, uh, with the West specifically. Well, purely because the markers of modernity and progress and stuff are all set by the West. So, you know, they didn't really have much of a chance to do anything else but to try and catch up in that sense. Um, and because of this, like, you know, the, the example that we always use for China is that, oh, in 40 years, China did what um, Europe did in 100 years, for example, or America did in 100 years. Um, it means that this great acceleration that we are experiencing right now is quite an extreme upward curve for progress, technology, um, capitalism, all that kind of stuff kind of bunch together. But what's really interesting in terms of Chinese science fiction is that I'm getting the feeling that the inspiration that writers in Chinese sci-fi is getting from the West is now getting to a point of saturation where we're not getting any inspiration from Western writing or Western literature or Western modernity. And where if we are to continue to be creative and to expand our imagination, we're going to have to reach out elsewhere. And we're already seeing a lot of um, Chinese sci-fi writers um, either going back to um, sort of ancient teachings, going back to Confucianism, Taoism, um, you know, all that kind of stuff, or Wuxia and, and Xianxia and all that. Um, and even in sort of academia or um, eco-criticism and all that kind of stuff, we're going to indigenous um, thinking, indigenous um, 
education and stuff like that. So we're all now reaching out to different spheres for inspiration. And I think at this point, Chinese sci-fi is super exciting. Just because we're at the cusp of like not knowing what the next thing is going to be and that you can just reach out and find um, inspiration from anything you want, um, whether it be our past or somewhere completely different. Mm -hmm. But it's the time that we've, we're kind of done with the Western concept of sci-fi. We're here, you know, we're, we're all writing stuff. How can we expand that, build it and create new things for ourselves? Um, and for our readers, and I think um, I think it's really exciting. Yeah, I'm not sure if my writing will reflect that <laughs> um, because I'm seeing a lot of this from a research perspective. But I am currently working on a novel, um, and it's set in Southeast Asia, um, looking more on sort of cultural and identity developments, but using sci-fi as the world. Um, so I'm, I'm I'm really quite excited about that. But otherwise, I've got a few short stories around um, and currently lots of nonfiction stuff because I'm doing my PhD. Mm. So papers and such, yeah. Yeah, I imagine all the, the words must be piling up constantly. Yes, um, but what are, I feel like I'm productive about it is a different question, right. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Good days and bad days, yeah. I guess. I, I have another question about your writing, uh, but I'll preface it with uh, more thoughts about what you're saying about how when all the markers of modernity are western what do you do mm. and like mm. i th i think living living outside the west in a country that's rapidly developing made me think about this and it forced me to think about it in a way i wouldn't have or made it real it made a question that would have been very abstract real mm. and it's like if, if anyone listening doesn't get what we're on about here try and imagine something modern or futuristic that isn't underpinned by Western stuff, like when all the modern engineering and um, systems that the world is built on are, can, are, we, are things we think of at least, or have their roots in the West, or we think of as Western, then how do you escape that paradigm? And like, to, to my mind, you can't really without, unless you accept a binary of my country X is indigenous ancient traditions versus the future which yeah. has to be based on a sort of western model cool. to my mind there isn't really anything outside that except through synthesis for re recombinations of new things um where like you know if you have enough recombination eventually something completely new that never existed before will come out and i guess every developing or developed asian country is in some way already a synthesis of all those outside influences mm. and their own influences and influences from their neighbors and blah body blah body blah so the reason i'm going down that road is i want to ask you yen in your writing do you think you've synthesized all the different cultural inf influences that have made up your life and your reading as well yeah um the answer is not enough mm. and one of the issues with being um colored writer or um, you know, whatever you want to call me, um, that I found out recently that I'm still finding out about myself is the fact that we do a lot of self-censorship. I grew up reading Inid Blyton, 
you know, not a I grew of progressive, up. Uh, thought. <laughs> no, not quite. No. I grew up reading in it Blyton. I grew up um, mimicking in it Blyton. So you know, if if you read books that have houses with chimneys, mm. um, fireplaces, snow, and all this kind of stuff. And you're given a pen and paper, and you said write a story. You sit down, and the first thing you do is you you write the same thing. You know, this girl lives in a house that has a chimney. Or, and I grew up in Malaysia. Are there chimneys in Malaysia? No. <laughs> um, it's a tropical country that's forever hot. Um, so growing up with that kind of um, sort of thinking is actually something that's quite hard to break out of. Um, I teach culture writing, I practice culture writing, but it's something that now I, that, that is something that I have to, I find myself having to retrain for. Um, I recently wrote a review on Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, yeah. Fantastic film, love it. And that for me is, you know, another version of Chinese sci-fi that, you know, needs to be told. But one of the things that I was, it, it got me really aware of is, you know, I'm watching, have you seen it? I have, yes. Okay, fantastic. Um, one of the things that um, really struck me was all the little silly things that they did in the film um, from doing the, like, you know, the palm trip, put your, put your hands as scissors into mine and then peep in, um, or um, doing little kung fu moves running around when uh, Wayman does that in the beginning. Um, it's stuff that, I've kind of done or I've, I've experienced as a kid, but have blocked away in my mind um, because it is neither important um, culturally, because it's not Chinese, in, like specifically Chinese, you know, it's, it's not something that I would think of. It's just a day-to-day -day thing that I experienced as a kid that was fun. Um, and it wasn't very important in terms of my research or literaryism <laughs> or whatever you want to call that. Um, and when you see it on the big screen, I had such a good laugh about it because it finally, it kind of hit me as, oh my God, my childhood's on, on the big screen. And it's fantastic. This representation, this like, I, I can, it's like I, I was immediately best friends with Daniel, the Daniels, right? Um, and everyone that's on screen. And Whilst I was writing the co-writing the review with Christy um, Dina, um, the review's available from Vector Online, BSFA Vector, um, and I'm sure we can share the link somewhere. I'm um, for it right now, you keep talking. I'll go. First. Okay, <laughs> great. So while I was co-writing this with Christy, we talked through um, the points. Um, we chatted a lot about it, and it occurred to me that it was because of um, sort of literary tokenism or practices of tokenism that um, that has had me just not considering some of my past as being important or relevant um, and that how much we censor ourselves is actually quite scary. Mm. Um, so when, when we're... Um, Oh, what's her name? Nicole Chung, I think, that I reference in the article itself. Um, he's an American, um, Asian American journalist, and she says this really, really well. Um, and she gave an example of when she was invited to do creative writing talks or seminars, 
where all the white American uh, writers were allowed to talk about their art and creativity. And when it came to her, the first question was, how do you deal with racism? How do you deal with the fact that you're Asian American? And she never got to talk about her creativity right. in those spaces. And that happens a lot to us. I mean, it's some ways it's necessary because we are here to talk about it. But in other ways, um, we're being silenced, you know, in all the different parts of um, our lives. And that recognition is actually, um, I guess, quite a big deal for a writer, you know, to be able to kind of understand. And all the stuff that I'm writing right now or, or from now onwards, um, I'm finding myself being able to draw a lot more on my past and a lot more on my experiences and different cultures um, that I come from um, that that is in me. Um, to bring it out um, into the stories themselves. And I'm probably just touching the surface. I'm probably not really going that deep, but even then starting to do this more properly um, is making me feel good about it. And hopefully it'll come out as something that is um, also accessible um, rather than just a mishmash of things. Um, yeah. But that's a very long-winded kind of answer to your question no well said well said um I, I i think i can understand it by putting myself in your shoes i can mm. give it my own pretty different perspective but coming at maybe the same thing from a different angle um mm. being scottish when you're reading when you're when you're coming across scottish literature in the education system you're getting like robbie burns you're getting all the people that you ought to read um, yeah. But when you're looking for books or films that deal with the sort of everyday reality, if you stop and reflect on it, it becomes a bit more complicated because so the vast majority of English language films I see will be American. And then the majority of those that aren't American will be English. And then everything else will be in little slivers. And one of those tiny little slivers will be stuff set in Scotland about Scottish people. And I think some of what you were saying I can relate to because there's a certain expectation of what a Scottish film should be about. Either it's from, from what people from the outside expect, either romantic highlands or poor people doing drugs, maybe, or getting in fights. But then there's also an inward expectation that, oh, I need to get out so-and-so message about my country or my people or my neighbourhood. So when you're when you don't have the sort of natural ease of being of writing something about the mainstream or being in a large dominant group and not having to reflect on your identity um mm -hmm. yeah you have to go through all these sort of expectations and even when you reflect on them you you still haven't escaped them because you because <laughs> because you're spending your mental energy on them yeah. so yeah it's um it's a rare thing or a thing that needs to be built to be able to, to be able to either cut through the bullshit and represent these smaller little segments of the reading and writing world naturalistically <clears throat> or to point a finger at the rubbish like as you were talking <laughs> i was thinking about that scene in train spotting i don't know if you know where mm. they they go on a trip out to the hills because they feel they ought to um mm. and one of them appeals to like basically a sense of national pride Look at the hills, the air. Doesn't it make you feel proud to be Scottish? And then Ewan McGregor goes, it's shite being Scottish, and then has his big speech. Mm. But even then, he's still trapped in it because he's still talking mm. about the identity in an abstract way and not dealing with the little minutiae that make it special. 
So I can kind of relate, but also mm-hmm. accept it's totally different as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a hard kind of cycle to be in. I, I sat in for um, a talk on, um, I guess it's Chinese film studies. Um, I think it was last year. And the director was saying, someone asked the director, like, you know, are you bringing Chinese films or, or Chinese um, flavored stuff mm. internationally? How, how are you showing, you know? And his answer was, um, it's really hard because you make a film and you show it to the international audience and then they go, oh, so people in China or people in Asia somewhere, um, they have the same lives as us. I don't want to watch this. Right. Yes, everyone <laughs> um, in the country of a billion plus people is just like the people in this film. Exactly. And then he goes, what people want to watch is um, either something really crazy or that everyone's suffering in there. And while he made that statement, someone in the audience put up his hand and said, just like Irish films, American Irish films, they had to go through a really long period where every American Irish film is about suffering um, for the longest time before something else like a comedy or, you know, <laughs> is accepted into into the genre. But even then, has it really gotten out of it? Yeah, it's, it's highly problematic, isn't it, when it's not the mainstream? Feel like with Japanese stuff in the West, it's once you stop and think about that, like people go absolutely mad for Japanese stuff here, but it has to be crazy or dark or maybe about samurai or something. Normal life, forget it. No one wants yeah. it. Yeah, but the the interesting thing about um, the Japanese um, industry, the um, the film, TV, media, um, all, all the the entire industry, is that it's so self-sufficient mm. that their creativity isn't at least, at least isn't um, affected by what the rest of the world thinks of them. Right. So, I mean, the, the only way you can see these differences is what is exported and what isn't exported in that sense. I really yeah. felt that living in China, seeing what was on at the cinema. So yeah. many mundane rom-coms <laughs> and crappy films I could not be bothered with. Where's all these like yeah. Chinese art, amazing Chinese art films that you, that reach you over here? Yeah. Didn't realize just how much sort of, I don't know, regular stuff st- that should stuff be right. That's <laughs> destined for a quiet life on a streaming platform. There is out there. Yeah, maybe um, the first thing that either other people, uh, non-English speaking people coming into the country realizes is like, why are there so many Christmas films, <laughs> or you know, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it's an interesting space to be. For sure, I thought we I could yeah. move us into the miscellaneous section now. Uh, since okay, we dare to venture into Japan, so we've got to get back mm. on track. Um, <laughs> so I I haven't picked one this time, but I wonder, do oh. you have a Chinese word of the day that you'd pair with a Shoshin news story? Since since we haven't mentioned the story in a while, that's true. That's true. I did not. Well, I I, I picked a word. Um, and I wasn't actually thinking about pairing it with the story, but it does actually, but it does actually pair up quite well, I think, in in a quite different way. Um, so the word is "ren." Um, so it's "ren zipang" and "er." Um, it's just a, a person and the number two, uh, "ren." And I chose it for many reasons. Um, one very selfish reason is uh, my last book is a nonfiction book titled Run. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mindfulness book. So I know the word well, and um, it's been with me for the last two years as I wrote and researched and all that kind of stuff. 
but I also love the simplicity of the um, the Chinese character and how much meaning it carries with it, even though it's such a simple um, s- simple character. So with a person on the side and the number two, um, it can either mean the relationship between two people, or it can also mean um, if you represent the number two as a line for heaven and a line for earth, it can also mean the person or people's relationship with the world around us. Because Ren is um, one of the values of Confucius' teachings, is a really famous word that has been translated into English in many, 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 many different ways. Um, I think one of the most popular ones is benevolence or humane or humaneness, um, but I would translate it as um, human love mm. or human kind and human kind, <laughs> if you see the together and separate. And I, I love how complex um, this word is and how important it is um, in our lives. And thinking about um, Xu Xinyu's story, there is so much of that human connection, whether it's with the stars or whether it's with each other, that's broken, complicated, um, sometimes wholesome, like um, Jiang Yang's relationship with the stars, where he he finally has the connection. But when you know when he, when at the end the um, the narrator tells him that was your star, that was your star, and he just ran away and ignored it that also created the whole kind of question of how do we manage these relationships when there's so much pressure you know from the outside um and and just that complicatedness of that word i think it's amazing perfect that is one of the best answers to that question we've had on the show so <laughs> thank you <laughs> if i had a medal i'd give it to you oh fantastic and and i should say please go read run my book. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mindfulness book um, using Confucius teachings and its subtitle is The Ancient Chinese Art of Finding Peace and Fulfillment. Um, and get it for the illustration, seriously. Um, Singh did a fantastic job with it, I should say, as well. <laughs> it's a beautiful cover, that one. I've seen the yeah. cover and let my eyes rest on it for a minute or so, once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, cool. It's very tactile as well. Like if you get it, and you can feel like everything's embossed and stuff. Mm, it's very lovely. yeah. All the better when a book is um, a nice material product made from stardust. Little known fact that Ren is made from stardust. Sprinkle, yeah, mm. definitely. Don't ask how we made the stardust. That's a less happy story. <laughs> um, next miscellaneous question: um, a piece yes. of music that you might pair with this story, perhaps if we're making a film. I have one, um, but I'll I'll let you go first because my one is a bit silly. Um, so I'm not very good with music, despite being having been a musician or am a musician. I guess I I don't think you can stop being a musician. Do I don't know. I play the viola. Ooh, cool. Yeah, um, and a few other instruments. But the only thing I'm doing right now is the viola with and with orchestras. Great. Um, 
And I don't listen to much new stuff or um, I don't really generally listen to radio or anything like that. Um, but so when, when, when you asked this question and I was like, thank goodness you gave this question to me beforehand because yeah. you've, <laughs> you've given me some time to think about it. It was really, really hard. Um, I had to pick something that was instrumental because I can't just, I, I just can't think of anything that had words to go with it. Mm. Um, and I went with um, a Debussy piece um, called uh, Sweet Bergamasque, the Prelude Movement. And it's just a really kind of, it's got a really light beat to it and it made, it, it kind of reflected because um, Debussy is from the Impressionist period, it's really, really easy to visualize their music, you know, um, so it was perfect for that. There were two movements I was thinking of, but I picked this one because even though the, the rhythm and everything was really light and floaty and stuff, which makes it feel like stars, it's all in a quite minory sad tone which reflects the undercurrent of you know the story so like if, if you just listen to it on the surface you can picture the stars everywhere and it's really nice and beautiful but if you really get into the piece itself you kind of get that yeah nothing on the surface is right and you know there are questions in there that's why i picked it that's i'm going to be listening to that asap that sounds great this is one of my weaknesses. I, I think I'm probably a few years away from really diving into um, classical music, probably by listening to stuff on YouTube. Because every, just about every classical music answer someone's given to this question has just been a beautiful piece, and that that sounds like it too. And I'm about to ruin it all with the completely crass suggestion of my own for a musical pairing, basically just because I've been completely addicted to this track recently, and it is, it channels a very a different part of the story that um when i glanced over it before um our chat i remembered oh yeah this this stuck with me and it's the sort of the relationship that our, our boy jiang yang gets bullied by captain wang the um popular boy and it's just a you know it's a nasty bullying relationship and i think um jiang yang doesn't if if, if he hoards up hate in his heart um, i don't think we see it but as a reader, I was just thinking, yeah, this reminds me of some of the bullshit I either witnessed or went through. And it made me, yeah, just remember those sort of angry teenage feelings and the resentment and the kind of just the, all the stupid petty little things that can make life in society a, a drag, dragging you down. Um, so I picked a track called Had Enough, but the acoustic version that I discovered uh, on stuck on the end of a greatest hits of a band that would I would have loved as a teenager but totally missed out on apart from like one track called Breaking Benjamin. Yeah, I 
really bittersweet, really soulful. Um, they're not the most sophisticated band, and I don't think this is a very sophisticated song, but I really enjoy listening to this one. It's one of these ones where it actually has more oomph acoustic than I think it would have had electric, uh, and the guy's mm. voice is just... It's very bittersweet. So it it is kind of thuggish music, um, but it has a bittersweet feeling that I think fits this gentle story. So there okay. we go. I can't sell that one any better than that. Brilliant. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to that as soon as we're done here. Um, and I like the description of thuggish used with the story because the rawness of the story, I think, deserves that in a, in a very positive way that it is able to reflect the thuggish as well as, you know, the, the really beautiful, pretty stars that we have. Um, yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah, because societies can be thuggish as well as people, and we all got to confront that as we get older. Yeah. Some of us every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, next one, <laughs> uh, the bonus question. It's for Patreon yeah. uh, subscribers, all 14 of them. So I'll be snipping this one out of the main episode. Listeners will hear some and this one will go up probably probably well after this actual main episode goes up on the Patreon. So that's how it works. Uh, the question is this, and I really am interested to hear the answer. Yen, if you could make any Chinese sci-fi story, uh, translated or not, diaspora or mainland, whatever, uh, novel, novella, short story, whatever, if you could make it into a movie for Netflix or a any streaming service, but let's say Netflix, what would you pour the investment into? I think, yeah, I think that's our, that's our bonus question. Short and sweet. I'll take us on to the, the final further reading questions. Now we've, you've recommended quite a lot of books, but if you wish to recommend more, <laughs> Or it could be something other than a book. If listeners want more like Shoshin News, uh, The Stars We Race, where would you send them? I'll preface it by saying, just guys, just go to Clark's World. There's so many, exactly. there's so much translated Chinese sci-fi up there. It's crazy. Um, just yeah. look for it. To be crass, just look for a Chinese name. And hmm. there you go. There's a lot of them. Oh, what's what's the organization um, that Clarks will partners with? Uh, the Chinese name is Weixiang Wenhua. What is the English? Storycom. Yeah, Storycom. Yeah, just search Storycom on Clarks World and you get all the stories that right, way. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you like more stories like this, read the rest of The Way Spring Arrives. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, to start with. Um, there is um, Xue Ting Ni's um, collection as well. Uh, yes, yeah, the um, Synopticon. Synopticon, that's the one, yep. Yeah, that has some bangers in it. Yep. And also this new one, which is New Voices in Chinese Science Fiction, which is edited by Neil Clark. So the collection from, you know, Clark's World as well. If you want printed books, um, I would recommend those. But yeah, everything that I've said on this show, go read it. <laughs> <laughs> and all, well, I can't guarantee all the links will be in the show notes, but a lot of them will be. <laughs> Um, so there'll be plenty for people to go investigating. I'm trying to think if um, I have anything from outside Chinese lit I've read that this reminds me of. Um, it's not really a one-for-one, one, and I may have recommended this on the show before. But um, mm -hmm. again, speaking of like good fictional depictions of childhood grievances and meanness, um, there's part of one of modern Scottish lit's classics, uh, Lanark by Alistair Gray, 
deals with um, a young lad's just trials and tribulations as a kid coming into contact with the crappier sides of the world. And it's a very strange book. Uh, half the, It's in four parts, book three, book one, book two, and book four. Okay. <laughs> three and four are in like a bizarre, bizarre fantasy, uh, dark fantasy, Glasgow and Edinburgh. And one and two, the middle section of the book, is a realist, basically a big realist drama about a boy who grows up into a failed artist in Glasgow. Um, and book one, that is the second part of the book, uh, has some of the same vibes of being an aggrieved kid <laughs> dealing with nasty people. And then you become aggrieved, an aggrieved adult dealing with nasty adults, so it gets better. It scales up. Okay. Yeah, that, that would be a tenuous recommendation for me. When I was, pre I guess, preparing for this um, podcast, um, it reminded, the story reminded me a lot about um, this book that I'm holding in my hand right now, which is my daughter's book. Oh, great. It is How to Catch a Star by Oliver Jeffers. Wonderful. Okay. And I mean, I, I don't know how much time you have. I might just very quickly read this and you can decide whether you want to keep it okay. or not um, in the show. Um, but I'll preface by saying, um, thinking about um, Susie Yu's story, I believe that if we took Jiang Yang out of everything and we just had a moment with him at home where he's the most content with his star, he would be this boy. Mm. Okay. So I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to quickly read this. We love readings on this show, or at least I do. I think the listeners okay. do. How to Catch a Star by Oliver Jeffers. Once there was a boy, and the boy loved stars very much. Every night, the boy watched the stars from his window and wished he had one of his very own. He dreamed how this star might be his friend. They would play hide-and-go-seek and take long walks together. The boy decided he would try to catch a star. He thought that getting up early in the morning would be best, because then the star would be tired from being up in the sky all night. So the next day, he set out at sunrise. But he could not see a star anywhere. He sat down and waited for one to appear. He waited and waited and ate lunch and waited. And after dinner, he waited some more. Finally, just before the sun was about to go away, he saw a star. The boy tried to jump up and grab it but he could not jump high enough. So, very carefully, he climbed to the top of the tallest tree he could find. But the star was still way out of reach. He thought he might lasso the star with the life belt from his father's boat, but it was much too heavy for him to carry. He thought he could fly up in his spaceship and just grab the star, but his spaceship had run out of petrol last Tuesday when he flew to the moon. <laughs> Perhaps he could get a seagull to help him fly up into the sky to reach his star. But the only seagull he could find didn't want to help at all. Classic seagull behavior. Mm -hmm. The boy thought he would never catch a star. Just then, he noticed something floating in the water. It was the prettiest star he had ever seen just a baby star. It must have fallen from the sky. He tried to fish the star out with his hands, 
but he couldn't reach it. Then he had an idea. The star might wash up on the shore. He ran back along the jetty to the beach. Then he waited and walked and watched and waited. And sure enough, the star washed up on the bright golden sand. The boy had caught a star, a star of his very own. There you go. I think your kid is very lucky having such a good storyteller in the house. <laughs> That's the thing I do most with her. She loves stories. Right. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it was a science fictional experience. I was portal was opening and I was back in nursery sat on a cushion. Was, oh, fantastic. Brilliant. Okay. Um final question. Aside aside yes. from How to Catch a Star by Oliver Jeffries, uh, what what are you reading <laughs> just now? The book that I have just finished is um Becky Chambers's um A Prayer for the Crown Shy. And it's brilliant. I completely recommend it. It's a hug in a book. It's one of the loveliest sci-fi books. Um, loveliest um, post-apocalyptic sci-fi books I've ever read. Uh, I love a good cozy post-apocalypse. Genuinely, yeah. I think that's an interesting... I feel like Severance has a little bit of that, um, enjoying enjoying the quieter world. What did you say yeah. the book's name was? I got the author name. Uh, a Prayer for the Crown Shy. And I'll I'll rattle off mine. I'm actually not reading anything right now. I'm between books. I just finished a uh, graft by Li Pei Fu. That is a uh, that's a publication in translation from Sinoist Books, and that was very very different. Um, it's about political corruption and graft and climbing up from from the countryside actually up the the, the tiers of the Chinese government. Sounds potentially a bit depressing or a bit bland, but I found this one really quite an enjoyable read and not too long either and now i am i have to i have the um the everything what is it the everything everywhere all at once problem i have all these books and which you know i have to commit to one of them it's terrifying but um it might be hospital from han song amazon crossing have given me an advanced reader's copy so nice. listeners might expect an episode from that somewhere down the line but i've told myself i've read so many books that are you know, in the bank for this show that are translated Chinese fiction. I really must yeah. read something different. But <laughs> I, I know Hospital is waiting for me. So, you know, it's yeah. it, it's a treat, but it also works for the show. So I'm debating whether to go for that or reach reach for something else. But I'm probably just going to go for Hospital. But that's a really positive um, thought for the industry for, um, well, in industry in China, but like um, for the genre of Chinese science fiction that, you know, when I started looking into it in 2013, there was barely anything. There was two stories online. Um, and now we have so much that we have to read lists mm. that we're struggling to keep up with. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's, I think it's kind of cool that the books from Chinese sci-fi authors can come out in translation without being a big event uh, that we can, it can, okay, maybe the flood of Leo Tzu books and Ken Leo translations is over, but now a trickle of other things that get to just be themselves, like we were saying mm. earlier. That's that's nice. Because I get the feeling hospital isn't necessarily going to be telling me something about hospitals in China. It might be telling me more about deep, dark secrets of the human soul or something, yeah. or modern society writ large, which should mm. be interesting. Like the, the Amazon have put a great big peacock on the front cover, not an animal famous for being Chinese. Oh, yes, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look at that. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering if he's going to run into a peacock in the novel or something. 
<laughs> Let me know. I haven't read it, so I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that too at some point. Yeah, yeah. we'll do. That is, that is all, I think. Uh, is there anything we've not hit on that you'd like to get out there? No, I just think I need to read a lot more and write a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, same, same thought here. And thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for the chat. And thank you for proposing to go for this story. And I think at some point, probably what's going to happen is I'm going to finish hospital and I'll be like, well, now's the time to read something not Chinese. And then I'll yeah. be like, well, maybe I will, but maybe it won't be sci-fi. And I'll be like, nope, screw it. I'll just read the way <laughs> spring arrives. Yes. No, it's, it's definitely worth the read. Um, and if anyone is interested in taking this conversation further, you know, um, I'm Yen Ui. And like on Twitter, on Facebook and Instagram, I'm just Yen Ui. Yeah. <laughs> so you can just find me there. Y-E-N-O-O-I. All right, we've reached just about the end of the show now. All that's left is my outro. So I already did plugs at the start of the show, so I'll skip the majority of those and just mention one thing that I've sort of realized since doing the interview. Uh, it's a very small thing, but um, in the interview, I mentioned that I, I thought Hansong's Hospital might not be so much about national sort of allegories and questions and more about universal human condition sort of stuff, about health, death, medicine. And I found actually it's got a lot of both. Uh, there is a huge amount of sort of national allegory and um, focus on China, criticism of China, thoughts on nar China's narratives about China. That's a huge part of uh, Han Song's hospital. But it also is very deep and dark and um, human, anti-human, universal. So you get a lot of both, basically. I just thought I'd say that. I, I, I'm really excited to, to do an episode on that book. That is in the works right now. I'm also... As of today, I'm halfway through the book. So yeah, just really excited about that. Um, and of course, you probably all know if you've been listening to the show for a while, what plug I'm going to do. And it's the best way to spread the word about the show. And that is in real life. So, so tell your friends, tell your family, tell your classmates, and tell that nasty little class captain, that teacher's pet that makes your life a misery. And until next time, until next episode, Zai Jian.